another session of inquiry and uh, questions and answers. And just bear in mind these are fairly informal sessions, so just pulling some ideas out, throwing some questions about what's happening for you and your practice or in your life, and I'll respond mm, as best I can from what my experience is. And uh, I may be wrong. <laughs> yeah. But I'll give you what I, what I can. And so some of this, not all this, is going to be... Um, well, it's just kind of like experience that I've sensed and looked into. It's not all kind of canonical, but I wouldn't adopt it if I felt it deviated from the, what the Buddha was saying. So how to prepare the mind and body for sleep? Well, I think you want sleep to be a special occasion, perhaps the last thing you do, or the thing you do because, you know, conditions are require that, or for your health and well-being. And the number of hours you sleep, you don't, don't really have to put numbers on it, because what is it? It's just another posture, another state of consciousness, another station of consciousness, so you you know, you might three or four hours here, a couple of hours there, a little nap there. You don't have to have a huge chunk in one shot, though you may. Now, I think the idea of the huge eight-hour chunk came from when work became more systematized, industrialized work, so that there was no chance to stop during the day, and then you just keep going until you're exhausted, <laughs> and then you've actually gone beyond reasonable energetic output and so there's a kind of a crash uh, that's needed to kick the system back I don't think it's very healthy so people say oh you need your 8 hours sleep well you need your 8 hours sleep if you're doing that kind of job or work that, that has got that non-stop driven state to it and it's unfortunate that we you know we accept stress as a fact of life. You know, you know, you see advertisements for today's stress, stressful lifestyles. You need to buy one of these pills or medicines or drink plenty of water rather than not have a stress-driven lifestyle, <laughs> which would be the best idea. <laughs> you know, in today's busy world, you need to get your eight hours sleep. Well, wouldn't it be nice to perhaps not to be so intensely busy? <laughs> yeah. Because the uh, I think the eight hour sleep thing is is um, it's not optimal because mm. when you sleep, this mindfulness is diminished. So ideally, you know, and you, you you're in touch with your body and mind. If you've got the situation, then you think, "Oh, I'm feeling a bit tired now. Let's just sit back for half an hour. Yeah. Let's just walk up and down. Let's just breathe in and out a little bit." or do some exercise and take an hour's nap. Mm. So if you can you can play around, you know, the body does need to its energies do need to be discharged. Yeah. But you can do a bit of that you can do when you're meditating, if you get it right. And then, you know, you might have just take time when you relax all your muscles when you lie down and you know, release. And so exactly how much you need is matter of you finding out. 
I wouldn't be too clock-driven by it or automatic about it. The more you can untether yourself from these automatic systems, the wiser and more um, in tune you'll be with with reality. (laughs) (laughs) Which is not a bad idea. (laughs) I mean like organic reality, living reality, not not the crazy stuff they dish up. Uh, stressed reality. Mm. Okay, so that's my preamble. <laughs> and how, how do you prepare the mind and body? Well, uh, it's good to prepare the mind going into a sleep process, then you'll have much less mindfulness, probably. And so it's good to, you know, like closing down the system on a positive note. So just clearing any negative influences as best you can, worry, regret, resentment, bitterness, you you can clear that, sharing of blessings, always good just to turn your your mind to other beings in your life, so you you kind of send your mind out to your field, your social field, and may she be well and may he be well and well, I'm economist about him or whatever, you know, so you try to clear so there aren't these kind of negative influences in your mind when you go to sleep when your mindfulness is less. So, so they can kind of, you know, give you bad dreams and, you know. I think there's real problems with negative mind states. I think they actually generate, cause the body to generate negative chemicals. So the more you can get rid of those, the better your health will be on all levels. Um, so that's your mind, body, and it's good to, um, I think, to stretch it before you go to sleep. You know, give it some light massage, stretching, yoga, so you really take as many of the kinks out as possible, even it up. And then when you go to your place when you recline, spend a few minutes, ten minutes or so, just, you know, finding a good position to just compose yourself. Mm, and then with a sense of kindness to the body. Uh, so then sweeping through your body up and down, good will, good energies through the body, calming it. So you're like, like tidying up your workshop. Mm. This is your workshop's body, or you could say it's cleaning your tools after you've done some work. So then, you, okay, you know, it's time to put them away. Uh, so that you end Today, also with the recognition, you know, if I do wake up, which we won't one day, um, I'll wake up, let's just establish mindfulness. Sometimes these last minute, you know, resolutions can, can, can linger and kind of come in when you wake up. Next question. Could you explain again the axis and the heart line? What do they mean? Well, what I mean is the um, the upright axis is more like a felt or a sensed or intuited or experience. When you sit upright, it's different from lying down. When you sit upright, it's a different energy even if you're curled over. It's brighter, it's stronger, clearer. Yeah. And so... 
same body, but upright means the muscles relaxed, more relaxed, and the body's more open. And there's a sense of an upright, that's what I call it, upright. <laughs> and it's, it's got stability to it. It seems to connect to what is observed in various uh, cultures and sciences as energy channels that run along the spinal axis. So the spinal axis, not exactly the bones, but there is a spinal cord. So if you look at it very neurologically, within the bony structure there's a spinal nervous cord, which has got a sac around it. And there's this stuff called fluid, like a cerebral spinal fluid that has its own oscillation. So in other words, the spine has got a particular something within it that has a particular life energy that oscillates. Uh, I don't know, I've forgotten exactly the number, like 12 times a minute or something like that, goes up and down. So it's like, a, they call it the long breath or long tide. It's, not, it's much slower than breathing. And this seems somehow or another to, to moderate the nervous system. So that's just looking at it neurologically. Now we also, you know, contemplate or recognize some of these um, Chinese um, skills and sciences. They call these, this upright axis, they call it the, the Du, the, uh, I think it's the Du, governing vessel. And so this one you, you recognize and you, you do various Chinese internal arts such as Tai Chi or Qigong or whatever with this in mind so it acts as your kind of upright channel and then it becomes quite um, stable and, and, and invigorated yeah. so there's a couple and then of course in Indian yogic culture you have the nadis and the, the channels that are also spinally oriented I've forgotten the names of them. It's on the tip of my tongue, but I won't bother. Um, you know, which, again, two energies, channels running up and down the spine. So they seem to be talking about the same thing in different terms. And so when the Buddha says, you know, sit with an upright spine, well, he's talking about something. He made a point. He didn't, it was pretty minimalist, what he's saying, but he's saying something that's, you know, meaningful because it seems to brighten the energy. When he gave his teachings on mindfulness of breathing, he, he said, you know, you go to a quiet place, sit at the root of a tree, fold your legs, and sit with the upright spine, knowing you're breathing in and out. So the only reference he makes to the anatomy is this upright axis, the spinal column. He doesn't refer to breathing through your nose or your abdomen or your belly, he just says, get that there and then be breathing. So this seems to be an important, you know, accessory or feature of breathing in and out. You keep that spine upright. Now, if you do that, well, I mean, when I do that, I get a sense of breathing itself seems, can be experienced as something that moves up and down. It can also experience it as moving circular in and out, but there's an up and down sense to that, which again seems to track this upright energy channel. 
And if you keep that axis in mind, my experience is, for what it is, is the breathing and the energy channel seem to merge. So your breathing strengthens your energy channel. And this is associated, again, neurologically, this is associated with calming the brain. We have various parts of the brain. And the very hyperactive part is called the amygdala, which is like an alarm button. And uh, that can get very hot when we're frightened, anxious. There's a lot of alarm signals going there. And of course, if that triggers, then you get various responses in an aspect of the brain called the hippocampus, which is immediate kind of reactive stuff. So this is the alarm bell. And they say, well, if you're doing breathing and out, it calms, the vagus nerve calms this piece in your brain. So it cools you down, you know, it keeps you steady. So there's certainly these energies being talked about here, nervous energy. So the spine being the main conduit of nervous energy in the body, right? Connects to the nervous system of the brain, the heart and the viscera, all plugged into this. Yeah. Right? So this is going to be about maintaining stability and steadiness and cooling and calming and up, you know, all that. And you can look at it for any of these particular sciences and they'll go into it in their own details. And I'm saying, you know, that seems to back it up. But we don't need to go into those details necessarily, but just recognizing there is such a thing as an upright axis. And it does connect to, to mind states. That is, if, if our brain is, is calm, then you feel steady. You're no longer panicking, reactive. So the upright mind, which is straight, unbiased, not reactive, is associated with those qualities which are supported by the upright axis of the body. Long story, isn't it? Basically bring it together. Upright body, upright mind, support each other, bring a sense of calm, stability. Now the heart axis, or the heart line, which are referred to, is uh, it's so obvious and so basic that we associate the heart with emotion. Everybody does, right across the cultures. And they say, you know, my heart ache. She broke my heart, died of a broken heart. My heart jumped with joy, right? What's this lump of flesh inside your chest got to do with that? <laughs> well, maybe it does. <laughs> heart, you see the heart, that lump of flesh is not just a pump. It doesn't have the strength to pump blood around the body. You, you need, you can't do it. It doesn't, you couldn't do it. The blood is pumped around the body through the heart, the veins, the arteries, everything supports it so the heart can't do it alone but a lot of the heart tissue is neural tissue it's nervous tissue so it's 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 got intelligence you know we think the intelligence is up in the brain but the heart has an intelligence so it's not just a blood pump it doesn't have the capacity to pump blood around this body on its own it can moderate the flow of blood it's a moderator and it moderates things in accordance with its 
is intelligence, which comes from its neural tissues. So it's obviously sensing what's happening in this body, you know, what's going on here. How am I feeling? You know, so it's, it's that, right? And, you know, and you can look at some of these people who study these things, Heart Math Institute, you can look on their website, and they're saying, yeah, they find these energies, they're contracting these energies, are streaming out from the heart, linking up to the brain, it's a connector, and it also, they can detect these electrical, bio, or biological energy streaming out from the heart, sensing around it, floating up to 10 feet or something. So there's, there's an energy field coming out there. And it's about, not about my stability, but about my relationship. How am I with this? How am I with my body? What's happening there? How's the fear? How's the joy? It's moderating emotional tonalities. And emotional tonalities are our primary signals for action. We're not rational beings. We're emotional beings that have managed to organize our emotions into rational packaging. (laughs) Got a kind of like an extra monitor on top that does some rational tweaking and verbalizing. But we're fundamentally, at a very basic level, we're emotional, emotionally driven creatures, which means we're joyful, we're frightened, we're angry, we're peaceful, we're loving, you know, and so on. And that's kind of what's going on for us. Because the heart, is feeling those things because it's sweeping around and it's important to discern am I safe? Am I how am I with her? Is this okay? What's happening here? So it's doing producing this emotional current. It's not about stability. So, so we need to always make sure the heart knows there's a spine in there, otherwise you can get rather overwhelmed with all this stuff it's picking up. So how do we do that? Well Breathing in and out, <laughs> relating to the upright axis, getting your feeling sense, your emotional sense to connect to stable center. Upright axis, breathing in and out. Not an emotional process, but a biological process. Cerebrospinal fluid doesn't fluctuate at all. You know, doesn't register fear and joy, it just keeps going. So if we can kind of get that energies to to follow it, then the the heart is going to get a signal about steadiness and stability, and it will begin to, okay, that is frightening, but there's this. Okay, I've got some backing here. And it can also learn how to discharge emotions. Emotions are supposed to stir us, right? Clearly, obviously, otherwise it gets us going. But also we want to know Okay, I've been got going, I've responded, enough, finished. <laughs> Take a break. They don't always know how to do it. Because it, it can still be fluttering, you know? Is it okay? I don't know, what am I right? What's, what's coming next? Is it, you know, it's just, okay, just wait, go back to that, and let that process empty out. Take the time to breathe out. So you get that current which actually soothes the heart, how it allows it to come out of the emotional current, which is appropriate and necessary, but we have to um, steward it. Now is the time to just cool things. Otherwise, you know, if it's too choppy in there, I'm not going to make clear decisions. And the heart needs some support in that respect. 
Otherwise, we're carrying, you know, the irritation I experienced in the morning, I'm still carrying it with me, and I end up losing my temper in the afternoon with somebody for doing something relatively trivial. And that happens, doesn't it? You're in a traffic jam at work, get all stewed up and heated up and impatient. You get to work and somebody drops a cup and you blast them. <laughs> because you, this pent-up frustration pours out. So wouldn't it be better to sense that? Just, okay, here's a discharge, discharge, and clean that out. So we enter the new situation a bit cleaner. So these two operating together. Next question. Person's talking about negative energies in, in the world around them and external thought forms and they feel affected when they come home with all sorts of emotional tantrums. And sometimes it just feels very sad, feeling broken heart for no reason at all, sometimes even suicidal thoughts. But if I don't take the tube, that's the um, underground railway, for those who are not familiar with it, or go to crowded places, I don't get this experience. How can one protect oneself from such unwanted energies? Uh, well, as I've said, you know, that upright axis is a godsend. Mm, that's always with you. And uh, you should keep your attention. Don't let your attention go out too far. So guard your attention so you're not picking up stuff you don't need to pick up. And keep your own breath in mind, keep your, keep your, if you can't follow your breathing every second of it, just keep a sense of a center in mind and don't let your attention go out too far from that. It does go out, okay, come back to your feet if you're standing in the train or you're sitting in the train, go back to your feet and your backside and your spine, just sit there, focus on those. That energy acts as a guardian. Eyes are the main problem. You go out through our eyes and there are lots and lots of eye-grabbing things around us that do exactly that. They grab you and they pull pull your energy out through your eyes. You know, advertisements and flashing signs and buzzers and all that kind of stuff. And then you're leaking, your energy gets thrown out. So you want to kind of keep your eyes lightly downcast. And the ears, you know, you can't do much about that, but it's mostly the eyes if you can restrain those. Have a mantra you can use when you're a train. Senior, just reciting a mantra to yourself. So you can connect the mantra to goodwill, generating that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because um, who knows what's going on in terms of energies out there. Um, what can you do about it anyway? Well, what you can do about it is not pick it up. Mm-hmm. And if you're getting these very difficult suicidal thoughts, then you really should um, be recommended to give a lot of uh, careful attention to your spinal axis, which as an energy line even goes down into your feet. Mm-hmm. And practicing may I be well May I just stay with this, stay with this in a gentle breathing kind of way, not in a fearful clutching way, but breathing myself back into the center. Um, because if there's depressive, fearful, agitated thoughts, we need to find a place 
which isn't fighting them or explaining them or listening to them or analyzing or adding more to it, but somewhere where you know, I'm not the thinking mind. I can be aware of it, but I've got it somewhere apart from that. And that is one of the primary, really primary uh, assets and skills any meditation teacher will emphasize for you. Get, get out of your head. And get out of those negative mental states with a simple meditation system that takes you back out of all that to something more secure. Person recognizes the two central messages of the thinking mind. <laughs> if I change things, everything will be okay and I'd be happy. And um, the other message is to build up the sense of me as a separate individual. So the practice, meditation practice, Dhamma practice, tends to be contaminated by these dynamics, and so it is. So how to get beyond these habits? Basically, these are called asava sometimes, or outflows, or also objects of tanha, craving. One is the craving or the outflow towards gratifying um, sense contact. If I got one of those, I feel good. And the other is the sense if I was um, more solid me, I'd feel good. So there's a kind of grip that occurs. And this doesn't provide the best fruit. So this is what, you know, we've been meditating, you know, looking at some of this, clinging, grasping, craving, sense contact, thinking mind. Um, there's not a lot more to add to it, but just to, you know, listen again to some of the material, reiterate, simplification. You know, actually what occurs is a flow of changeable phenomena. They may be repeating themselves. So changing doesn't mean they go away, but they are welling up and moving on. So rather than going into the topic or even the mood, just notice the changeability and the fact that you can be aware of the changing nature of feelings, attitudes, compulsive tendencies and stepping back from them by turning back to into your body because the body doesn't do this it's the mind that's doing it breathing out doesn't want to hold on to anything it's the mind that does it so if we step out of these we need to refer to simple body and stable axis and then once you have some stability doesn't mean there aren't unpleasant feelings or weird perceptions or strange emotions but there's a stability from which you can step back from being engaged with them and that's that's the turning point one or two more questions a questioner reports that in last night's talk i talked that known is a feeling well I don't quite recall that, but uh, I'll say something about what those words can bring up in my mind. Mm. The first way of knowing anything is feeling it before you can conceptualize it. You see something, the first thing that happens is, oh, and then, oh, that's a, 
the thought comes in. And um, if we go back if we, as far as we can to very early times, we didn't have a lot of thoughts. We certainly had a lot of feelings. We were crying and wailing and <laughs> all the time. We were feeling lots of things. Uh, uh, the feeling was there. We couldn't hand, couldn't understand it. So the first first kind of knowledge is felt impression, felt impressions of things. And that's still the case, although naturally our thinking mind has now become so much more developed that it's pretty immediate. As soon as you see something, first things, oh, that's that. It kind of runs ahead. And sometimes it runs ahead to the point when you, you don't actually really get the thing at all. You just get, you get the idea of the thing. You don't really know it. Mm-hmm. You, know, you see someone, oh, that's uh, Suki, you know, that's Lee or somebody. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've got the idea of them. And you start, oh, right. actually, you haven't actually checked in with how they are. You've seen, you've seen a visual feature and you've really jumped to the name with your idea of what they are. Yeah. Actually, what's, you didn't really know, or do you just interpret them? You interpret that image. So often our thinking mind can jump ahead of direct reality. Of course, this makes us quite speedy beings compared with other creatures who generally sniff things out a bit. Yeah, dog sniffs things out, checks things out, licks things. But we immediately know it even before we felt it, sometimes instead of feeling it. And that's pretty horrible, isn't it? When people have judged each other and made decisions just based upon their own ideas rather than anything more directly sensed. So we're talking about the difference between direct experience and conceived experience. And by and large, our human organized world works in terms of conceived experience. We can plan, we can imagine, we can you know, think of India or Burma or without even going there. And we can have all kinds of ideas about those people without even knowing them. <laughs> we can caricature them without ever meeting one. And people do, and we do, people do. And often politics is about creating that, you know, or those filthy Swedes or Mexicans or something. It just, you know, we can demonize people. Uh, and so this conceptual world is the one that's being presented. And of course, the big concept that's being presented is you, me. I am a, one of these. What that? What's that? You know? We go back to direct experience. It's much more really felt, right? Uncertain. And then maybe slightly disagreeable, and then changes to oh, agreeable. So the direct experience is feeling, and that's immediate, and it's always exactly right. I mean, it's exactly right in telling you what you're feeling. It's not exactly right as a description of the object. It's a description of what's happening for you. And that's what you need to know to deal with your biases and fears and worries and joys. And, okay, this is actually what's happening. How is that? 
and then it changed. So feeling is accurate for as long as it lasts, and then it changes. So it's important to know or to be aware of the flow of feeling, because that's what will that's what will push your your inclinations and steer them. And if you're aware of feeling, it changes your 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 intentions can be much more soft and moderated than this straight line trajectory that the conceiving mind brings up. And when we meditate, we have a straight line trajectory of what you think meditation is. Well, that's going to cause you suffering. But to be present with the feeling as it changes and open to receive feeling as it shifts and changes, that's going to have more conducive results. couple of questions about livelihood. First person asking about the topic in general. Most commerce seems to involve some aspect of exploitation of nature and its resources or of people. Um, mm-hmm. The natural inclination is to seek work offering meditation or a spiritual type of healing work rather than commerce. No, it was not exploiting nature or people. But it seems that's also problematic, as it feels like these offerings lose some of their right intention and their potency when there is an exchange of money. It feels a very difficult space to navigate in terms of proper alignment with the path. It's a tricky one. But yeah, unfortunately, a lot of commerce, you know, commodities... Are, come from the earth and uh, earth doesn't get any pay for it at all <laughs> just gets trashed by and large while we drag raw materials out of it or chop bits of it down mm. and this is a huge uh, topic uh, and of course we're seeing results of that in these days lots of places are changing the climate because it seems to be absolutely clear from all sources that that's caused through human ignorance towards resources in the planet, pollution, um, contamination, and of course lots and lots of plastic. Because it's convenient that we then throw away into the water. And then it comes back, kills the fish, contaminates the oceans, and it gets back into our bloodstream. This is commodities. It's amazing how many people still feel the need to buy plastic bottles of water. I could never quite get this. But, uh, it's an amazing proper, you know, piece of advertising to get people to do this when it's so much <laughs> more expensive and more polluting. Anyway, that's my shtick on that. Yeah, so commodities. You need to get commodities, you need to get something to stay alive. Um, So, okay, what about service? That's a good idea, if you have some skills, service. 
but it may require exchange of money it may indeed so because that's money itself is not bad it's dangerous stuff when you hoard it but by itself it's just you know encapsulating value and moving it around if it moves around you know flows around and goes where to good places it's quite useful stuff when it's hoarded and and longed for and you know gloated over then <laughs> it's problematic uh, and it's necessary to you know get your food and shelter you've got to pay the rent so i think that's the reality of it and you obviously for yourself you know if you're interested in this kind of work you've got to look at can you sort of more like well i mean so a lot of dharma centers say well you know you could you know if you give us a kind of standard rate if you can manage it if you want to be a bit generous give a bit more then we can give other people who can't afford it we can get them in for free <laughs> you know you can do a kind of sponsored retreat whereby you just hardly pay anything and the people who've got a bit more money are paid and so it shifts around i think it's a good idea that you have sliding scales for for retreats and just ask people you know you know if we you can get in for this but if you want to be a bit generous it will help people who are poorer to get in you know and then we try to even it out i think that's quite skillful and uh, of course you know if you're trying to keep your overheads minimal that's good so this is all skills to develop because money is just a fact of human life and it's how you handle it and how you moderate it and i think any way we can get these fixed systems like you know so for example we have somebody who who works for you know, monasteries who does sort of publications things and he used to do it completely free but he, but he had to make a living and he's getting so spending so much time doing his work for free he wasn't making a living it's <laughs> kind of quietly going broke so eventually we persuaded him to to accept some money you know and he said okay and he said so the people ask him how much does it cost and he said well nothing is expected nothing is expected everything is welcome <laughs> nothing's expected everything is welcome because how much does time cost how much does my time cost you can't put money on it really but you know some helps helpful helps keeps things going and uh, we'll do what we can i think this is a nice to have that lightly floating attitude towards um if you can if you're not strapped to some system that you know is too mechanical and we're seeing the end of that maybe as a you know the economy is always considered to be the final end you know unfortunately we can't eliminate fossil fuels because it's bad for the economy you know we've got to send people back to work even though there's sickness around because it's bad for the economy and if we you know build this that and the other it'll be good for the economy even though we have to destroy a forest so we can build a railway through it because it's good for the economy what's this economy stuff <laughs> how can you how can you destroy a planet for the sake of the economy
<laughs> what's that? I mean, could it be something that's just, you know, sharing, helping, shifting resources around, keeping it light, keeping it lean, helping out, realizing, you know, there's lots of us and there's only so many resources. Could we be a bit lean? Could we, people are earning billions, could they sort of like just give it away? <laughs> you know, <laughs> the right livelihood. I mean, you really think about it, it's almost not exactly against the law, but morally disapproved of if you, you know, if you've got a billion, like, what are you doing? Having a billion, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? Give it away. You shouldn't have that much. Share it out, that's not appropriate. <laughs> so I wouldn't quibble about just getting your basic needs met. Person is trying to make a decision about their next paid job. On one side, the idea of returning to my previous career, which was a wholesome one, excites my body and I feel my energy flowing. Until I remember the very little time I had to meditate and take care of my mother, who is elderly, I'm her only caregiver, and my heart contracts. On the other side, I imagine starting a new skill. I wanted to pursue work less hours and focus on other aspects of my life. Mine feels very spacious. Soon, however, I feel my chest tight with fear, not being able to make a living out of it. I'm not that young, so I keep postponing the decision. Does it make sense to read the signs of one's body and mind to make a decision? Yes. What else are you going to rely on? It's your life. Yeah. So, you know, somebody might say, oh, you're an idiot. You could have made a lot more money doing that. What are you doing that for? But it's your life. You know, your well-being counts, and that's holistic, isn't it? It's holistic, isn't it? I mean, it means that you won't feel comfortable if you haven't got some time to spare with your mother, right? That's She's part of your life. Meditation is what keeps you in balance. If you don't have time to meditate, that's not a holistic solution, is it? You know, those have got to be part of it for you to feel... You're acting in a responsible way, and the rest of it, you just got to take the chance. I think life is risky, and uh, remember, whatever we do is kind of guesswork. But if we act in good faith and with good friendship and with clarity, then you take that with you. You're going to land on your feet somewhere, somehow. That's my sense of it. That's what I've always worked with myself. Yeah, you know, wasn't born a monk, but that's kind of. <laughs> That's, that's the general trajectory I followed. I didn't I decline careers because I just no, I just no. I need I need to also keep my holistic, you know, time for clarity, time for learning, time for people, time for my body. I'm not selling myself to some job which could chuck you, could sack you anyway. Particularly if the economy tanks, <laughs> suddenly you put out of work. So I wouldn't. I wouldn't, wouldn't buy the idea of a fixed permanent job with an economy because it, it might go belly up <laughs> anyway. So find out what you really what you love to do, where you feel most whole. That'd be my advice. Another question. This person's son has cut them off from the life and also cut off the grandchildren. My pain has ease, but at times I can feel distraught. When I think of him, I can't picture him 
my heart is literally stone. That's the closure, isn't it, of uh, grief and feeling cut out. It's the heart of stone. Yeah, well, don't go into it because if you go into afflicted areas, just put your attention on it. It doesn't, it seems like you're trying to deal with it, and you are, of course, but you don't deal with it by going into it because you absorb into that. It just gets more intense. You deal with it by standing back from it. And this is what stable, open stability is about. Trying to find a place where there's stability and you can be open and just send open to that heart, open to the closure, be open, there it is, closed heart, feel it, describe it, look at it, send goodwill to it, um, you know, be with that and feel it, how it's feeling in your body, is it in your chest, uh, probably is, does it extend into other parts of your body, probably does, can you breathe through the areas that are less closed? Yeah. The difficult part of a knot to undo is the tightest part, so work on the loosest part. Yeah. Psychologically, a sense of loss, or I don't know, what's the, what's the loosest part, most manageable part of that for you? Yeah. And uh, practice. I wouldn't picture the person too much because that's not a perception that will, will support your practice. And focus on, give attention in an appropriate way to the sense of closed, shut out, abandoned, which is very painful. But painful heart better than a closed heart. Painful heart can come back to life we give it the right time and the right holding so that's all we have time for today thank you for your questions I hope some of it's been useful